0: Our guest today cut an unconventional path to the pro peloton. Beginning on the ski slopes of Montana, his pioneering position on the skis of his time trial bike made him one of the top GC riders of his generation. He's also the man behind one of the longest running and best loved Grand Fondos in the US. Please welcome Levi Leipheimer today on Bobby and Jens. Levi Leipheimer, welcome
1: to Bobby and Jens. I'm stoked to be here. I I mean, we, we were just talking, but, you know, my invitation to the podcast has apparently been lost for a long time. I've been waiting, and finally I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: you know, the preface that, I, I gave Levi a little crap because, you know, it's been, what, 14 years that he's had his Fondo out there in beautiful Sonoma County, which is where I spent some of my early days on. Um I never got the invite, but uh man, it has been a long time. And you know, we obviously raced together. You and I were Olympic teammates. You used to fight it out with old Yenzi in the tour of Germany. But uh this is just gonna be a lot of fun going down memory lane a little bit. But first of all, like I see your backdrop there.
1: Yeah. Where are you? Uh i well, I've been living in Lake Tahoe for uh last five years now, and we just had our Second biggest winter on record, and it's just incredible. I mean, you drive around; even now it's April nineteenth, and there's 30, 40 foot snowbanks left. We're we're not going to be mountain biking for a while, which, you know, it is what it is. Luckily, I have other things I do these days.
2: But wouldn't that bring back like childhood memories? I mean, uh-huh. uh, you could go out and ski like back in the days, right? Before you picked up cycling, are you still skiing? Is the skiing still possible out there? Or? Oh yeah is the snow not good enough? No, um, so actually
1: today I realized that I'm approaching 100 days on Nordic skis. I probably have like 20 or 30 days on Alpine skis. So I've been skiing a lot this year. It started early and we have plenty of snow. We're gonna be skiing for a while. In fact, I live near uh, Palisades Resort and they have uh, already announced they're gonna be open until July 4th. Yeah. Wow,
0: I mean we, so. we saw on the news and the internet The amount of snow that you guys got but i mean when you get that much snow especially in those big clumps because i had a place up in tahoe for a while and i remember one time you know my neighbor i was over in europe and my neighbor sent me a picture and there was like six feet of snow in my driveway six feet but you guys were getting that like on the on the regular
1: it's it's a mix it's a mix because the locals they, they have lived here a while. They know how to deal with it and they've got four wheel drive. They have clearance, they have snow tires. They know to stock up when the storms are coming, but you know, our, pre- our proximity to Sacramento and the Bay area being so close, um, we get a lot of people coming up that are not prepared and they have to go over Donner summit and they're, you know, they're in Tesla's with summer tires and it just, it's a mix. It's a melee and it's chaos. Um, but yeah, we got so much snow, a house in Truckee just collapsed like two days ago, even here, even now in April, I think we got like 60 feet this whole year. Yeah.
2: Wow. So yeah. before we then actually go back to cycling and all that, um, with all that snow melting over the next months, is that like California is out of the drought? That's a really good question.
1: I bet you uh, for sure. They would say, no, we would need like three years in a row like this, but you know, I'm not a, climatologist but it sure seems like we should be good for a while because we've doubled our 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 average snowfall for this year yeah we're approaching 800 inches and we've normally get 400
0: well <sighs> levi you were born and raised in, in butte montana did you ever have that sort of snow up there
1: no you know the thing about tahoe is it's special is they call it a maritime snowpack because it's close to the ocean so we pick up a lot of moisture um, it can be a little bit wetter and heavier than like Colorado and Utah snow that's known for such light snow. It doesn't stack up quite so much. Um, but the, the amount of, of water volume in our snowpack, especially now, it's like it's glacial. I mean, I wrote up, uh, do, do you know where Serene Lakes is from your time living here? It's, it's up on the pass. It's high up. And those houses are under 30 feet of ice now. It's insane. It's going to be until August. Yeah, they look honest. like
0: igloos, not even houses yeah. anymore, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. It's been it's like it's been Papa incredible House. to see. Yeah. <laughs> but it's kind of cool right now. Like I rode around the lake the other day just because I've got the Fondo coming up and so I had like, I better ride my bike. So I rode around the lake, but then, you know, the next day I'm Nordic skiing or, or going to the resort. You can kind of do both right now. I got to it's ask you cool. a
0: quick story because uh-huh. when, when I used to ride around the lake, a buddy of mine told me that if you go clockwise so that you're on the inside of the lake the whole time like the lake is on your right Uh that it's 71 miles the loop but if you go on the counterclockwise where this the the water is on your left that it's like 75 miles is that
1: true you know i don't know i could i'll have to go back and look at some strava files but that seems far-fetched
0: It does. But like he was so convincing when he told me that. And I'm just like, okay, well, you know, it is a big, it's a wider circumference, right? So maybe, but I wouldn't think in the miles. But (laughs) anyways,
1: it's just for the record, it's better to go clockwise because you are closer to the water. You can see the, the view better. And it just seems to make sense that way for the uphills and the downhills.
2: And uh, but I can add another uh, friend story of Bobby, a friend of Bobby rode around the lake once and got the most massive brain freeze ever. Remember that, Bobby? I think I need to tell that story <laughs> yeah. because I witnessed it.
0: <laughs> so, you know, up there in, in North Shore, there's the 7-Eleven, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. So we, we rode from my house over Mount Rose. We did a lap and then we're coming back and we're like, hey, we need some food. So we stop at 7-Eleven, which I thought Jens, you know, world traveler knew what a Seven Eleven was. And it was kind of <laughs> hot that day. And he's like, saw a Slurpee. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I'm gonna get one of these. And he's like, <clears throat> looks on the cup and it says, warning, brain freeze may occur. And he <laughs> said it. So I'm thinking, he knows what a brain freeze is. We walk out the door. He takes the biggest pull I've ever seen, like, a 15 second, three bubble guzzle sort of chug out of the Slurpee. And then all of a sudden just start, his head starts clicking, like clicking. And he's like, "Uh," like he could not move. And I was just like, oh my God, he's got a brain freeze. He's like, what is that? I said, you just said you just answered your own question. You saw it on the side
1: of the cup. It was like a warning.
0: And he was just like, I never experienced that in my entire life. But it was hilarious. That, that must
1: have been that must have been early in your career, Jens, because that explains a lot of things.
2: yeah right i think it was 2004 and i was running into the sun in the middle of the parking lot to soak up the sun so my head would warm up (laughs) and the brain freeze would go away it was so painful and bobby almost choked he was laughing so (laughs) hard he almost suffocated oh my god that was a good story i'm uh,
1: I'm curious jens do you know the significance of 7-eleven when it comes to american cycling
2: absolutely we had now two or three Mm 7-eleven riders um, and yes, and Bobby's a big fan of that whole story, so I do know okay. a lot. I mean, I'm
1: sure as Bobby can attest, we grew up watching that and that was inspirational for me as a teenager.
0: Well, that is a perfect segue into one of my next questions, is when we were younger, you were two years younger than me, I believe. You were born in 73. So she- she's, you're about ready to turn the big 50 aren't you?
1: Oh man, uh, I don't know, I can't do math. So, we'll just move okay, on from that well, question.
0: <laughs> I, I think you are, buddy. we got to plan something big. But, you know, our paths didn't really cross because by the time I was, you know, quite young, I was racing over in Europe and, and you were two years younger. What was your path from Butte, Montana into uh-huh. the world of cycling?
1: You know, looking back, it's definitely meant to be um, because how do you find the road bike in Butte, Montana amongst a culture of wrestling and football and drinking and fighting Uh, and you find yourself in the tour de France one day. I mean, it was meant to happen. It was out of my hands. But, um, the short story is my older brother, who's he's like seven years older than I am. He and his friends, for some reason started riding road bikes. Probably the only time it's ever happened in history of Butte, Montana. Uh, I was 13 at the time and started to tag along and, you know, I'm in tennis shoes and and a t-shirt. And after two weeks, I could drop them. And uh, I remember watching the 1987 Tour of France when I was that age. It was an epic battle between Roche and Delgado. And I was just hooked. You know, looking back, I knew it's kind of really what I wanted to do. But, you know, you're 13. You, know, you don't know if you're going to make it there or not. But that was, it was meant to be.
2: So then at what age you put on your first race number?
1: 13, yeah.
2: All right, so you started and then straight away started racing within the same year. There's no two years of training or contemplating about it.
1: This isn't isn't Germany or Europe, Jens. I mean, we're talking about Montana. It's very, very uh, limited competitions and limited participants. So, you know, small races spread apart. It wasn't my first sport when I started. I was a ski racer and uh, little by little just took over.
0: I hear that. That's exactly what happened to me at around the same age. But I had it easy. I grew up in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. We had the Olympic Training Center three hours down the road in Colorado Springs. You know, Boulder, Denver area. You know, we had the Junior 7-Eleven team back then. Plymouth, Reebok. I mean, cycling was everywhere. We had the Coors Classic that basically went through our valley. Uh But there has to be a moment where you go from a kid following his older brother around in tennis shoes to actually realizing that this is going to be your profession. Did you have to relocate? Did you huh. like, what was your your breakthrough moment where all of a sudden you had that foot in the, the proverbial door, as we say?
1: I think there was probably uh, multiple moments like that. You know, it's like step by step, level by level, and so I actually graduated high school in Salt Lake City. I went there to ski race and down there, there, you know, it was a little more competition, more races and kept doing better and better. I mean, on the bike I'm talking about. And then I met someone who had been to Belgium before and he was going again. And uh, I tagged along and ended up, you know, living in a, in a hostel for a couple of years, like, you know, not the whole year round, but I'd come back and forth and just, just kind of threw myself into the deep end there because I just needed to go somewhere where I could race a lot and learn the sport. And Belgium's actually a pretty good place to do that. What years was that? 93, four and five. And then after that, I started to do some races on the national team. And, um, and then eventually got on a small pro team in the US and then US ball That worked. pro team was
0: Saturn? I was I was actually Neutrophic. on.
1: It was well. It was the it was the year after Neutrophic, but that team was called uh, Colorado Cyclist with uh, Vauders and Malcolm Elliott, Thurlow Rogers. Uh, so one year there, then two years on Saturn, and then I went to U.S. Postal.
2: So at 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 what age or what moment you started to believe that hey, this Tour de France thing might happen actually for me, and second part of the question. At what year, at what time, you actually could live off your cycling? At one, did you actually make the first okay salary? I, mean,
1: I guess the first year I turned pro, I was only making like $20,000 that year. But, you know, it was enough for a 20-year-old to uh, to live and pay rent and buy food. So that was, that was the moment, the first small pro team in the U.S. And I think... Um, Really believing that I was going to get to the Tour de France probably wasn't. It's tough because, you know, I went to U.S. Postal and that's when, you know, Lance had just won his second or third tour. And I felt like even though I was on that team, it felt like a kind of a big step to get into that team. And the first year was kind of like survival. I started to get results at the end of the year. And then the end of my second year, I went into the Vuelta, no contract with the team. Roberto Heras was our teammate. He was the defending champion. And he was not as good as he was the year before, but I just came into really, really good form. And long story short, I ended up third on the last day in Madrid. No contract with the team. And so uh, all of a sudden, you know, I remember having an offer from my pay and... Couple other teams, but eventually went to Rabobank, and then that's where I was like, okay, I'm going to the Tour de France. Yeah, I
0: remember that Vuelta. You were absolutely flying back then. Yeah, um, you know, to back up a little bit, I remember. I think the first time that I was just like, damn, Levi can time trial was like 1999 when you won the nationals, and I think Steve Heg uh-huh. and I forget, uh, Chris Weary, our other buddy from from Colorado. Yeah. Yep. You beat them. Uh, was that, like, where? when was your, your first win where you were just like, you know, okay, I'm here now? Do you remember uh, your first win?
1: I remember my first win when I was on U.S. Postal was at the end of the year. It was a time trial at Franco Belge. Remember that little stage race? But I, I did beat, I beat, um who's the german guy he like a week later he got a medal at the worlds michael reich uh, michael reich
2: yeah michael reich The one with the scar on his face a yeah. big strong yeah. powerhouse yeah. yeah michael reich he yep. got
1: beaten by like one second in that tt and then a week later he got like second in world's time trial so I was actually like, yeah. i
0: have that in my notes i looked that up so yeah you won that time trial in franco belge in front uh-huh. of daniel nardello michael yes yeah. third but you also beat time trial specialist Lazaro Bordrogi and our buddy Fabian Cancelara. Oh. Yeah. It's fun (laughs) kind of going
1: back and looking at that stuff and
2: being like, holy cow.
1: Fabian was probably like 18, but whatever.
2: (laughs) Talking about some of the good old days, Uh. would you have a moment, it doesn't have to be a win, would you have a moment where you go, that's the day or the moment where I was the most proud or the most happy about my performance. Uh. Maybe coming back to the peloton after a crash or whatever, being on a podium after a puncture. Or do you have any moment where you go, hey, that was when I was at my best, but maybe not everybody have seen it.
1: Oh, beating you into California, that was pretty good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, thanks for rubbing it into me. Oh. <laughs> I feel so well, much we better now. We went back and
1: forth, yes. You got me a tour of Germany a couple times. I mean, I won a TT in the Tour de France. That was a, an incredible day, but everybody saw that. You know, there was there was a time when I, it wasn't even my result. It was Alberto Contador's first big result. He when he won Paris Nice on the last day, and our team was really incredible. And I felt like I had a lot to do with that day. And yeah, nobody knows that, but I was really proud, and I was super happy for him, and, and I was super happy for the team, and. It was as if I won. It was the beginning of his um, career. So it was that was pretty cool. 2007 Paris. Yeah.
0: Jeez. Well, 16 time trials uh, from my research. Obviously, you've had that gift. And then when you started to ride the Tour de France for Rabobank and, and Gerald Steiner, your time trialing wasn't what it was other times during your career. But one of the things that was really cool was you were one of the first pioneers of the super aero position. And I remember you spent a lot of time down in the, the wind tunnel. I think it was the San Diego wind tunnel. Uh-huh. Um, obviously, that position is, is not legal anymore. But tell us a little bit about that project and, and how all the effort that, that went into getting in that, that crazy position.
1: You know, I, I, do you remember Kirk Willett? Sure. He uh, ran so his that wind tunnel, right? Well, his brother Craig was, he was heavily involved and I was on Steiner and I, you know, I don't remember how it came together, but, um, Specialized I think was involved before they had their own wind tunnel. And that, that San Diego wind tunnel, by the way, I gotta, I gotta just mention it's really cold. It's tough in a skin suit. Um, but Craig, uh, he set it all up. Kirk was there and we were testing positions and it was like, you know, okay, it's okay numbers. And he's like, let's try this one thing, you know, elbows together, arms up in your face. And it was a record for the wind tunnel. They were like, that's the lowest number we've ever seen anyone produce. So then it was like, holy shit. And I went outside and wrote it and I was like, this is actually more comfortable than what I've been riding around in. So uh that was a big yeah, that was a big moment in my career actually. I have Craig and Kirk to thank for that so hope they're watching
2: so um these uh, these TTs did help you a lot winning uh, GC right you were good in the mountains and then you could gain more time in the TT that got you to win three times California uh-huh. right yeah. why why would why do you think the race stopped and what would it take? To bring it back, I mean, you you must have been in love with the race. You were involved with the the, the route developing uh, and, uh, the course a little bit. Yeah,
1: you know, I th- I think unfortunately to put a race on in America, especially in California, it's just really expensive. You know, cost them at least a million dollars a day. So Amgen and the Anschutz Group, they were I think they were losing money every year. It was just a promotional vehicle for them. So. Yeah, unfortunately, just the bottom line, I think it was just too expensive. Yeah, so we, I guess we just need some big, big sponsors. You know, and it has to be televised, which it was, but probably on a bigger scale. It would need to be televised on a bigger scale. Don't you agree, Bobby?
0: Yeah, that's a tough one. I think you hit the nail on the head right there with the expense of, you know, closing those roads. Um, police is, is quite a big thing. But uh, to kind of, you know, pivot to another race or another event that you've had going since 2009, um, the Levi's Fondo. Um, Like You were still racing when you started this. uh And you had relocated or were living in Santa Rosa and decided to start a Fondo. What and why Uh did you come up with that idea? And tell us a little bit more about the event.
1: You know, I had been kind of working on an idea for a couple of years before that. And I think it was born out of, and I tell this story a lot, but it really remains true is that when I look back on my childhood and how I got into cycling, and then as a professional athlete, um, and I'm sure you guys can relate, it's a selfish, self-centered existence. And you take a lot from people who are happy to help and they share in your success and and that's all great, but it always felt like I um, I was taking more than I was giving. I, I suppose maybe I gave in the form of entertainment, but that's all, I think that's kind of hard for us to realize when we're on the inside, or at least it was for me. So I was always kind of thinking like, what can I do that's like to give back to the fans or to pay it forward? And then one day I was riding with a, a really good friend of mine in Sonoma County, his an Italian guy, and he had on a jersey From a Grand Fondo in Switzerland, it was the Alex Most Grand Fondo. Remember, I'm sure you remember Alex. He was on BMC at the time. Yeah. And I was like, I had heard of Grand Fondos, but I'd never heard of a rider like hosting or endorsing a Grand Fondo. And all of a sudden, it just clicked. I was like, there are no Grand Fondos in the U.S. We're right next to the Bay Area. This is Sonoma County, the best road riding in the United States, in my opinion it just all made sense and clicked. And and I you know, hooked up with Carlos Perez at Bite Monkey who had been putting on a couple of events, uh, mountain bike events before then. And he was just like, we're gonna do this. And he took it by the reins and I think everything just fell into place.
2: It went really successful. We had thousands of participants, mm-hmm. right? And then the Corona or COVID uh, thing happened. How did you manage to go through that? Because um, as you know, my ground funnel was often a week before, after yours for, for a few years, and we didn't survive the the COVID years. We couldn't bring it back after that. How did you manage to keep it alive?
1: Mm. I mean, that's a good question. It's, it's not the same scale it was. You know, we had like 7,000 riders before then, which was pretty overwhelming, and it was really hard for the team to manage. And I think for a lot of people, that was a little too chaotic. Maybe it was tipped the... Um, a fun meter into a little bit of chaos. And so, I mean, I thought it was great, but uh, for a lot of people, it was a a bit much. So now it's like 2000 and I think it's a more manageable number. I think actually COVID was a nice break for the team. Like Carlos, he needed a break uh, to regroup and just kind of pivot. We now start in Windsor, which is like 10 miles north of Santa Rosa. And it's a lot easier for us to get in and out of town, a lot less roads to close, goes back to our our discussion about the Tour of California, the cost of CHP is really high. And so it really lowered that cost. And uh, the town of Windsor is super happy that we're there. And it just it seems to fit a lot better for us. And I think, you know, the community really steps up. We've got a lot of volunteers. And it's just, it takes a lot of people and a lot of effort. And thankfully, we have that community in, in Sonoma County that made the, the event survive through COVID. Yeah. I remember living there.
0: Um, so I met my wife. So I went up there for a training camp in the beginning of 1991. We stayed for two weeks. That's when I was riding for the Richie. Motorola? Team. Oh, no. For for Richie. So this okay. was before Motorola. In 1992, I went out, I was riding on the Spago team, and I went out <laughs> to stay there with my friend Paul Burgert, who lived in Santa Rosa up on the hill, uh, Foothill Ranch Road. I think yeah. that's kind of close to where you had a house and met my wife, you know, met the cycling community, which is massive, uh, met my wife on October 17th of 1992 and still happily married. But I remember those days that I was there from like 1991 until 1995, when we moved to Sacramento was, that was a mythical ride that original loop that you did um is it king's ridge loop
1: yeah king King kingridge yeah king
0: King kingridge it was and and i never did it because the folklore around doing that loop was like unheard of like oh man like you're out in the middle of nowhere there's no water there's no food and then you know it's just so hard um was that like that was your original course was that loop right Right. and now you've kind of Instituted another awesome ride in that area. As like you said, it's probably uh-huh. some of the best riding in the country of the geysers. So, are you guys going out to King Ridge and then finishing up the geysers and then coming back to Windsor?
1: Personally, I don't because I'm. Uh, that's a little too much for me on that day. But so we have six routes, anywhere from what we call the Piccolo, which is like 20 miles, super, uh, a super nice route through rolling wine country. Uh, all the way to the Growler, which does go out to King Ridge, comes back on Skaggs Road, which I'm sure. Skaggs. Yeah, That's Skaggs. That's the other road. That was yeah. Scary. Yeah. You think King Ridge is hard, and then you hit Skaggs, and then they do the geysers afterwards. It's 136 miles with 15,000 feet of climbing. So it's you know it's a it's a queen stage of the Tour de France. <laughs> wow.
2: Yeah. Well, We'll not be doing that on Saturday. <laughs> Oh, I thought you would be the first one racing out of the gate. No, I mean you look incredibly fit for our listeners. Levi looks like he hasn't put on an ounce of weight since I saw him last time racing somewhere. So you stay incredibly fit, but you're not going to do the long one then.
1: No, uh, I have good genetics. I don't really gain much weight. But um, you know, I spend the year. I'm approaching 100 days on Nordic skis, and you guys think bike racing is hard? You should try Nordic skiing. It's uh, it's very difficult. Um, So that's how I stay in shape. But, you know, I've ridden my bike like three times in 2023. So I'm not ready for such a big ride. We'll be back
0: after this short break. I want to talk about your garage because I follow you on social media. So you're riding road bikes, gravel bikes, mountain bikes, all the skis that you have. Uh But The thing that has caught my eye for years, and you just recently got a new one, is your conversion van oh yeah um tell tell me a a little (laughs) bit about that because every time i see those at gravel events or at grand fondos i just something's telling me i need to get one of those But like you were one of the first to think about
1: this (laughs) i think you helped design your your new one right um i'm currently building my third one you know when you if you're you've had buyer's remorse right Like, this is a pretty expensive item, and I've never had buyer's remorse. It's just an amazing tool for, um, I don't know, getting out to places you've never been and experiencing something for the first time out in the wild, completely off-grid. It's fully capable, and um, yeah, I I just love it. Um, a, A really good friend of mine in Portland, he has a company called Benchmark Vehicles, and he just does amazing work. He's a he's an artist, and um, yeah, I've been talking to him every day because um, I'm currently building my next one, which is exciting. So, w-
0: what are those little upgrades that you know from your first one to your second one, your second uh-huh. one to your third one? Like, <laughs> there's so many cool little things that you see in these things. But like, what makes it the baller project for you? What are those little, blank pieces yeah, that you put in there?
1: It's a rabbit hole. Um, my next one. We're talking about a Mercedes Sprinter, not an RV. Uh, it's a 170 wheelbase, so it's the longer of the two. Uh, he can He's putting in a full shower, uh, induction cooktop, sink, um, auxiliary heating for the air and the water. There's a- auxiliary AC. There's two giant lithium batteries that power everything. Uh, fully custom audio. It is, it's going to have Starlink on the roof there's solar on the roof there's storage boxes on the roof there's storage box on the the rear door it's a custom um, upgrade and suspension um, they cut part of the body away to, to, to fit a bigger tire in there there's an onboard compressor um, I'm missing for sure I'm missing there's tons of uh, like off-road lights and then load lights and party lights underneath the van It's quite the vehicles
2: (laughs) so so what he's saying is if you by any coincidence crash down the golden gate bridge you could survive a week within (laughs) your van on the bottom of the sea is that correct (laughs) uh
1: sure no i i don't think so jens but um you can definitely survive out in the wilderness
2: for a while the bikes go inside it, yeah. or on the roof, or behind it. Where where would be uh, the place for the bikes?
1: Yeah, so uh, the back of the van has a platform bed, and underneath the bed is the garage. And in the garage, I can fit four bikes, four bikes, mount, four mountain bikes, four road bikes, or any sort of um, combination with some skis and gear. And then you're you know that's completely separate from the living. Um, quarters inside which you access from the side door but then to get to the garage you open the back door you've got all your gear there and then the beds on top and then in front of the bed you have got shower refrigerator sink cooktop drawers with all of your cutlery and and dinnerware and and pots and pans and food and clothes and it's pretty pretty (laughs) rad
0: so 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 jealous of that but you know jen's mentioned it and i've heard rumors that you could basically step back into the peloton and be competitive you're so fit um (laughs) that comes with the ability to suffer but to train a lot by yourself and you know you you trained a lot and i think you still train with with pete stetna Maybe, maybe not so much anymore, but I remember speaking with you one time because I was always amazed how you would fly from Northern California to Europe, do a race or two, and then fly back and then fly and be like immediately competitive with the time change, the time difference, you know, everything like that. But you said something to me one time about intervals. You know, intervals are, duration based, right? Like three minutes of that, five minutes of that. And you said something to me one time that we were doing a a climb, I think it was in Bosque, and you did the calculations and you said, this is gonna be five minutes. I can do anything for five minutes. How did you approach interval training, especially at those higher intensities? Did you kind of think like that? Like, you know, this isn't too long. I can do anything for this duration.
1: I don't remember that conversation, but um, I'm sure you guys can relate that by, by the end of your career or the last whatever, how many years, uh, training and racing, it, it becomes an art form, right? Like you you start off when you're young and you're learning and you're trying to soak up everything you can and, and, you know, you go down rabbit holes that end up being a dead end or you waste your energy and by the end you get back to the basics, I think, and- you know, by the end, I didn't really need a power meter. I mean, I still had one, but I knew from perceived exertion, what 300 Watts felt like, what 400 Watts felt like. And I started training with Max Testa halfway through my career. And that was probably the most impactful, um, thing that ever happened to me. He, he completely changed me as a rider. And, um, I never thought I would be able to handle the load that he gave me, but he just, had an amazing impact on me and i learned a lot and a lot about myself and so i don't know if that really answers your question but that's probably
2: the best i can do now that we talked about you know more science and training and intervals of course you still follow and watch races these days right what do you make out of these these young kids they come from cyclocross mountain biking just kicking behinds of everyone um you think you could live and deal with this modern way of cycling, intervals, they weigh your food, you have to weigh yourself 10 times a day, send the results into your coach. Would you be able to to live in this modern day of uh, cycling? Because I think for myself, I would struggle with getting comments to breathe, to eat, to digest, and to breathe again. Um, you think you, you would like it and you would be good at it?
1: I, I personally don't think I would need to do that. That's I think that's what by the end of your career it becomes an art form and so you know as a younger writer you follow all of that rigidity and it's it I think it it ends up being a waste of energy but you do have to go through that process to learn to trust yourself and trust your own perceived exertion and listen to your body because I think all those numbers and all that science and all that external um, distraction can disconnect you from yourself and you're not listening to yourself. And that's a big mistake. I think that's probably the biggest mistake that any athlete does is pushing themselves too hard, not listening to themselves, not being kind enough to themselves. But again, it's a process you have to go through. But I, I do, if it's okay, I'd like, you know, you mentioned watching today's racing and I was thinking about this today. You you've got Matthew Vanderpool, right? Like his dad won classics, his mother's father won the Tour de France. He's got this amazing genetic ability. He is the perfect classics rider. Like, he's got an incredible set of skills for riding classics, right? He won Milan San Remo, he won Perry roubaix And then you've got this kid who's not a classics rider who rode him off the wheel in the saddle at the place where everybody knew he was gonna go. I mean, it's just incredible. Pogachar is like, I don't know, have we ever seen anyone
2: like him? The new Eddie Merckx almost. Yeah. I mean, it's I,
1: apples and apples and oranges, right? We can't really compare him to Eddie Merckx because it's totally different, but it's just, I mean, I'm at a loss for words.
0: There's no doubt that we are living in a very blessed period of being a cycling fan. And I am sure as heck happy that I'm watching it from my couch instead of trying <laughs> yeah. to keep up with <laughs> this because, you know, this Pogacar <laughs> kid, I, I have to think that... Raising against him must be so depressing right yeah. now. I mean, yeah. he, you know, you win Amstel Gold, you win Flesch Wallone today. Um, he's going for the triple. There's only a few people that have ever done that. But it's almost like depressing, I would think, even if you're at your best to know that this guy is, is that much better. But Jonas Venego is winning races with two fingers in his nose. Um, I'm going to ask you this, Levi, because you you have experience in the the biggest races, going for GC. It seems like there's a a, a, a silent battle going on between Pocachar and Venigo Like Venigo got the best of him last year, and he won the tour. Um, he used that as motivation over the winter and came out just smoking, right? Just winning half of the races that he's entered. And then Venigo takes a little bit while longer and then wins multiple stages of his first race. He won three stages of Bosque and the overall. Are these guys shooting their shot a little bit too early, or do you think we will see them still at their best in July?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. That's another thing I don't really understand, because in our day and age, the Tour de France winner was nowhere until maybe the Dauphiné. Maybe maybe a little spark here and there in the spring but um it didn't it didn't work like this they didn't come out all guns ablaze and winning everything and then still winning the Tour de France so i don't know it's c- completely different than when we were racing um i think you guys probably know better than me cuz um you're watching a lot more closely but it seems to me that the reason pogachar lost the tour last year was he only has himself to blame. He was just, he's just too aggressive, he forgot to eat or something on that one day. And so, Vingegaard had to do a perfect race and Pogacar had to make a mistake. I, it just seems to me that Pogacar is the better rider.
2: Couldn't agree more. That's when people ask me about the tour and I just did a preview about the course and so on for a German magazine. Um, yeah, man against man, Pogacar is the better rider. Vingegaard has just a much better, stronger, more balanced team. Pugachar is sometimes seen to be all by himself, getting his own bottle or bringing his own arm warmers back to the car. That never happens to Vingegaard, to so that helps Vingegaard. But I couldn't agree more. Man against man, Pogacar is just a little bit better than than Jonas, I guess. Yeah,
1: and Jonas is more measured because he has to be. Pogacar has, he's got extra bullets to fire. And, you know, I, I just see him, you know, he sprints for... Every finish line to try to like gain time or, or just be in front of the other person when, that it's not really necessary, especially those high end efforts. A lot of watts or they're hard on your muscles, so it catches up with you. It's just what I think, do.
0: no doubt, no doubt. I mean, I I don't understand it. I realize that fueling has become so much more important than when we were racing. Um, I remember you know our nutritionists or our coaches you know, giving us a little bit of information, but we didn't know what a gram of carbohydrate was. You know, we just kind of ate a bar or took a gel or sipped on that bottle. But now, like Yen said, it's so regimented and calculated. Um, I, I do feel that that is the reason why we're seeing such great racing and, you know, people going with the hunger knock or the bonk or, you know, hitting the wall, you just don't see that anymore. But, you know, the overall, Speeds records are being set basically every every race now, and obviously technology has a, a lot to do with that. But it's it's a different world. uh There's no doubt yeah. about it. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> I know. it it, yeah. it is sure sure as heck fun to to watch and. I semi- just don't
1: know how they're so good, so young. I mean, it took me till my late twenties to to develop fully. You know, both experience wise and physically. And now, you know, you got a Venepol and. Pogacar, and Van Gogh is young as well. and They're the best. Van der Poel, Van Aert, they're all young. It's,
2: uh... Yeah, it's a, it's a new generation. Uh, last year, for example, uh, Jai Hindley, winner of the Giro, was the grandpa of the three Grand Tour winners. At the age of 25 or 26, he was two years ahead, the oldest of all three of yeah. them. You know, Remco Evenepoel and Vuelta is very young. God is very young. And I think also last year, all three Grand Tour winners um, did win their first one as well. So it's not a repeating uh. victory for any of them. So it was a pretty interesting year. Uh, and yeah, like you say, they all so young, but hopefully they last also very long.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Well, I've wondered that. Yeah, me too, the... me too.
2: See, Levi, I, I'm stoked
0: that you still pay attention to this sport because, I mean, we spent so much of our, our of our life doing it. Um, so I'd like to hear your opinion on the state of cycling in the U S at the moment, you know, we see obviously gravel is the new buzzword. We have, we talk about it all the time. I do it. I love it. I think it's amazing. Um, you mentioned Torrey California, maybe having a tough time coming back. Do you think that we are providing that sort of infrastructure? To the young riders these days, that will give them the chance to get to Europe, like like you and I did.
1: Um, when it comes to gravel racing, for example, I think that ties into what we're talking about, Tour of California. It's much less expensive to put on a gravel race. There's no cars. There's a lot less traffic control, and people enjoy it. It's it's a little less dangerous than road racing. I think you know the speeds are slower. I don't know. It's interesting to do and then that brings up the point of, you know, are we, are there enough road races to develop uh, the next generation? Maybe not. But, you know, the gravel does show who has the engine. So, in that sense, you know, we we'll get to see who's really strong because there's a lot less drafting, a lot less luck involved as far as tactics go. So, I I see gravel as being a, a platform for the next generation to get to European road racing, but not riding in a peloton that's like in a fast moving peloton that's going through technical bits is that could be a problem. I don't know.
0: But one last question, Levi, for you, you know, they recently had the Belgian waffle ride down in San Diego. There was a lot of ex pros in that race. If you weren't stuck up there in your igloo up in (laughs) in tahoe and we're actually training and you stepped into the belgian waffle ride yeah would you be going for the win would you be competitive or would you be there just to participate do you have that that competitiveness still
1: I mean, when I, when I do step into a race, it, it's like second nature. Like, you know, I'm like the scorpion on the frog's back. I can't help myself, but to like get competitive at a race, but to put in the work beforehand. Mm. Like I've got a really good friend who lives here in Tahoe that went and did the Belgian Welfare ride. He was 25th, but he has spent so much time on Zwift this winter. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if that's what it comes down to is like, are you willing to put in the work and. I don't think I'm willing to put in the work to to be going for the win. To go there and ride it, maybe be top 25, that's probably pretty possible without having to do too much work, just a few big rides.
2: I would have another question, but totally different subject. Um Now that you live in Tahoe and there's so much snow around you, we talked about it. So you basically exchanged the fire in California against the snow or I mean, just for our listeners, your house not only burned down once, but twice. Would you like give us a, like a short story about how that came along? Uh, no, it didn't, it didn't burn down twice. Um, I, that's what everybody told me. Your house burned down again after you rebuild it. No? no, no, So then please correct me. No, yeah, me. yeah.
1: No, my house burned down in 2017 and, uh, Moved to Tahoe in 2018 and rebuilt here a, a, a new house in 2020, 2021. It's all getting away from me now. 2021. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Life just blows you certain places sometimes, you know? I I didn't, when it burned down, I was like, I don't know if I ever want to own a home again. I'll, maybe I'll just rent for the rest of my life. But it just worked out that I rebuilt and for no rhyme or reason.
0: Well... The winds of destiny have blown you around to some pretty cool places yeah. you know butte montana uh, you know you well, lived oh, in yeah. Girona, <laughs> lived in santa rosa and now up in lake tahoe man i tell you it has been an absolute pleasure been going down memory lane a little bit here yeah. thanks for filling us in um it's been a long time since since we've caught up even though i do follow you on uh, social media from time to time but levi all the best with your event coming up this weekend and man, let's get together and uh, do a Grand Fondo or ride gravel yeah. sometime. It'd be a blast.
1: You're both always welcome to come to the Fondo. I just, I guess, I'm too humble to ask. But let this be known that anytime you, either of you, want to come, people would be ecstatic. So, but and it's been it's been awesome reconnecting with you both, uh, Jens. You and I had epic battles and tour California and tour Germany, and and I really do cherish those memories and those experiences. Bobby, like you said, we were Olympic teammates. You know, I always remember Athens together. Um, I had such a great time there and you obviously had a very successful time there. And so uh, again, I'll cherish those memories forever. Thank you.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Levi for being
2: our guest. Thanks a million for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Bello News production. The producer
0: was Mark Payne, and this episode was edited by Tim Moser. Please
2: follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens, and share your cycling stories with us. Levi lives in a pretty extreme environment right now.
0: What's the most extreme weather you've dealt with on the bike? Let us know at Bobby and Jens.